would tell writers to recognize that the first book is really your your rehearsal in terms of figuring out what what it means to be a writer. That was Angela Jackson Brown sharing her advice to new authors. Stay tuned to hear more about Angela's journey as a writer here on Pages and Voices. I'm your host, Meg Bell. We'll be right back after the intro. Welcome to Pages and Voices, the local author podcast, sponsored by the Allen County Public Library. This podcast is dedicated to featuring the works of talented authors within our community. Today's author guest is Angela Jackson Brown. Her latest book, Homeward, which just released on October 10th, is a story of change and self-discovery. Let me set the scene for you now. Georgia, 1962. Rose Perkins Bourdon returns home to Parsons, Georgia, without her husband and pregnant with another man's baby. After tragedy strikes her husband in the war overseas, a numb Rose is left with pieces of who she used to be and is forced to figure out what she is going to do with the rest of her life. Her sister introduces her to members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Young people are taking risks and fighting battles Rose has only seen on television. Feeling emotions for the first time in what feels like forever, the excited and frightened Rose finds herself becoming increasingly involved in the resistance efforts. And of course, there's also the young man, Isaac Weinberg, whose passion for activism stirs something in her she didn't think she would ever feel again. Homeward follows Rose's path toward self-discovery and growth as she becomes involved in the civil rights movement, finally becoming the woman she has always dreamed of being. And now let me introduce you to today's author, Angela Jackson Brown. She is an award-winning writer, poet, and playwright who is a member of the graduate faculty of the Nasland Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University in Louisville, Kentucky. In the fall semester of 2022, she joined the creative writing program at Indiana University Bloomington as an associate professor. Angela is a graduate of Troy University, Auburn University, and the Spalding Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. She has published her short fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry in journals like the Louisville Courier Journal and Appalachian Review. She is the author of Drinking from a Bitter Cup, House Repairs, When the Stars Rain Down, and Light Always Breaks. When Stars Rain Down is a highly acclaimed novel that received a starred review from Library Journal and glowing reviews from Alabama Public Library, BuzzFeed, Parade Magazine, and Women's Weekly. It was also a finalist for the David J. Langham Senior Prize in American Historical Fiction. A mouthful. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. We're going to begin with you reading a small portion of your newest book, Homeward. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yes. So I'm going to read uh, a little bit from uh, chapter two. Mama and me made our way to the bench my twin brothers had made for us to sit on when we went out to the orchard. The orchard belonged to all the Negro folks who lived in Little Parsons. It used to be called Colored Town, but through the years, folks stopped using that word so much. Little Parsons became the name we all used to identify where the Negro folks lived. Tell me what happened, Rose. Mama, I don't. I stopped. I saw the look on her face. She was not going to allow me to get away with anything but the truth, so I told her everything. I told her about Jasper lying to me about his finances and the fine and stately home he supposedly had waiting for us. I told her about how hard he struggled to make ends meet and how he finally gave up on farming and entered the Air Force. 
Why didn't you tell your daddy or me what was going on, Rose? Mama demanded. Why would you lead us to believe everything was just fine and dandy down there? We would have helped you, children. There was no reason for you to struggle as long as your daddy and me have breath in our bodies. I couldn't say nothing, Mama, I said, ducking my head. I was ashamed. You tried to tell me to wait, but I didn't listen. Well, that explains part of the story. Mama remained steely. Tell me the rest. I continued to look down at the ground for a moment, and then I raised my head, and I looked at Mama, finishing the story I had begun. After Jasper left, I moved in with his Mama. She and I talked, and we decided it didn't make sense for the house Jasper and I shared to stay empty, especially since we needed the money. Neither one of us was up for doing much farm work, so we rented it out to the Negro school teacher, Mr. LeBlanc. A single man? Yes, ma'am. Go on with your story. Mama folded her arms across her chest. Thank you for sharing. I just finished the book yesterday. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a sweet. It was a sweet story. It was hard, hard to read though. Some parts of it. So yeah, it was. It was a difficult book to write as well. Um, so many of the details, or not so many, but some of the details were personal stories that were family stories of mine that I integrated into this book. So there were times when it was very difficult for me to go into those places because I knew I was writing about things that had happened to my ancestors and my family. I was wondering how much of it had a nonfiction element. Are you comfortable sharing what some of those nonfiction elements were? Absolutely. There's two scenes in particular. One scene, uh, it happens on a backcountry road. My protagonist, Rose, and her father are in a car together, and they're stopped by the police. And the police officer uh, harasses the black man, her father, in the story. Well, a very similar experience happened with my father and myself. We were going to a church, and we were stopped, and my father gave me very specific directions on not to move, not to talk, and no matter what happened, not to look back um, to see what, you know, what could have happened to him. So that was one part of the story that was true to my family. And the other part was the taking of the um, voter registration test. My grandfather, Mr. Lee Jackson, um, went to register to vote and wasn't allowed to. And my father came back from World War II, uh, decorated uh, veteran, and he was not allowed to vote as well. So all of those stories are stories that were in my family. And for most of my family, those weren't stories they wanted to relive. But I felt like it was important to tell them. Absolutely. I want to return to the uh, voter registration question in a bit. I, I have that noted. But Homeward returns readers to a family you introduced in another book. What was the book that they first appear in? When Stars Rain Down. Okay. Yes. And why was the story of Rose important to tell? I'll tell you, I really thought that I was going to stop writing about this fictional town of Parsons, Georgia. I wrote about it in When Stars Rain Down. Then I wrote about it again in The Light Always Breaks. And I thought to myself, I'm done. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've told everything that needs to be told. But then something about... Uh, Opal, the, the, the woman in When Stars Rain Down, just stuck with me, and I wanted to know what happened to her next. I wanted to know, I think I really wanted to know that she was okay, because I put her through so much in that first book. I wanted to know that she was happy, and I thought, let me 
just explore this story again. And, and it came to me to explore it through her daughter's eyes versus hers. When I first sat down to write, I thought I was going to write another book with Opal as the main character. But I decided that once I started thinking about this character, that she was the one I wanted to follow. So how long did the story percolate before you actually decided to write it? Like, how long were you envisioning this? I really started thinking about this book somewhere, I guess somewhere around the pandemic. So everything is either before pandemic or after pandemic. So that's the truth. So I spent most of that year doing the research and the writing for that for that novel. I um, I, I outline all of my books. So okay. I spent most of 2020 outlining, you know, the book and trying to put it together in a way that um, would make sense to me and then just started working and doing the writing. When you say you outlined the book, how much research goes in into that? I mean, is this like a robust outline? Like, It's a very robust outline. I spend, pro- for every book, especially with historical fiction, I probably spend about a good nine months researching. That's all of the historical details. Any and everything that I, you can imagine, I want to know about that time period from what was the average hem length of a woman's dress if you bought gasoline, what would you have paid for it? I want to know all of those details, as well as just the historical details. And so I started researching um, from 1962 to about 1964, and I thought that's the perfect time frame. And then when I got closer to the end and started talking to my publisher about publishing the book, or talking to my agent who talked to my publisher, we realized that this book was going to come out in nineteen uh, in twenty twenty three, mm-hmm. sixty years yeah. after so many historical details that are in this book happened, and so it felt like everything was aligning itself properly for that book to happen this year. And so we talked about this a little bit. You touched on this a little bit that there's some tough situations in this and heartbreak in this book, and that it was kind of tough to write some of those scenes. How do you how do you get through it? I found my, I was crying. I was reading some of this, and I was like, my husband's looking at me. <laughs> so how do as a writer, as an author, how do you get through that? And I don't want to liken myself to a doctor, but I think it, it's something similar to what a doctor must do. I would think because imagine if you're dealing with terminally ill patients. You can't cry at every drop of the hat. Somehow you have to find a way to distance yourself from what's happening. And I think in the writing, I have found a way to distance myself from the writing of these very painful, you know, scenes. And it hits me when I'm done and I reread it. That's when I'm crying. Yeah. You know, that's when I'm feeling these strong emotions. I was listening to the audio version of this book and the 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 reader, uh, the narrator, Janice, has read all of my books except for the first one that I wrote, and I just, I it was like hearing it brand new uh-huh. through her voice. So somehow I'm able to detach myself from it when I'm writing. So you do as you were listening to her, Janice reading mm-hmm. it. You were, were did you were you having these same emotions? You were absolutely, crying? yeah, because these are real people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've lived with them for a couple of it feels like a couple of decades I guess it would have been in the early 20 early 2000s when these these novels started as short stories oh I, I see yeah so they started as short stories and my mentor Crystal Wilkinson who's the former uh, poet laureate of, of Kentucky really just encouraged me to think about these as novels she said there's a lot of rich material here 
you should really think about turning these into books. And so after some time, I decided she was right. So are the short stories available somewhere, or are these just short stories that you have in your possession? They're part of my thesis. If you're willing to go to Spalding University to their library, (laughs) you can go to a back shelf and you'll see a dusty copy of my thesis there, but... It's, there probably are some people who are, would be interested in that, people who are really interested in these characters. Isn't that strange, the idea of that? But yes, they're there. They're there. So did you base Parsons, Georgia on any place, or is it completely fictionalized? Most of Par- Parsons, Georgia is fictionalized. I grew up in a, a small community in called Ayrton, Alabama. So there's some aspects of where I grew up, I think, in Parsons, Georgia, but I was able to, I knew that the story, the stories were going to be set in Georgia. I, I don't know why I felt so strongly about it, but I did. And I, my husband and I went there and I said, I think, I think my fictional town sits between McDonough, Georgia and Atlanta. We should get in the car and just drive to the spot where I, I think this, this town exists. So we got on these, this backcountry road. I told my husband, you got to drive like 15 miles an hour because that's what they would have been doing in the 1930s. <laughs> so we're driving, putt-putting along, and finally I see a baseball field. And I said, that's the baseball field that Cedric, my, one of my characters, would have played on. And so I just started walking around, and it was almost like magic. You know, it's almost like I could visualize the, the church. I could visualize the houses and the businesses. I could see the, 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 the old cars driving down these dusty roads. It was just all coming to life. And that's sort of how Parsons was born. That's really On a backcountry road in Georgia. <laughs> um, so things that I, re- I enjoyed about this book, I loved it when you mentioned As the World Turns and Guiding Light. And I had to look up Love of Life. I, I'm not familiar with that soap opera. But I did recognize several of the people that start on that soap opera from other soap operas I've seen through the years. But um, So did anybody in your family watch As the World Turns and Guiding Light? Oh, my goodness. I, you know, I think growing up at the time period when I grew up, there was one television in the house. So I had access to Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, and all those other shows in the morning. But in the afternoons, <laughs> it was all soap operas. <laughs> yeah. So imagine, I can remember staying with my, uh, we called her Cousin Bert, but Cousin Bert was probably about 90 years old. And I can remember being a little girl, maybe I, maybe about seven or eight, and she'd say, Little girl, I'm going to the bathroom now. Now you keep up with what's happening on my stories while I'm gone. And so I'm sitting there and she comes back and I would have this long narrative of what just happened that she missed. So that was my childhood in terms of, I say I learned about as much from the soap operas as I did from PBS shows that I was allowed to watch. So yes, definitely. Soap operas was a large part of my life. Um, My mom used to tell a story about she would, Everybody was talking about dark shadows at school, and she came home and watched Dark Shadows, and she got herself all worked up and scared to death. And then she like pushed something in front of the door that night to sleep because she was so nervous about Dark Shadows. I went back and watched it a few years ago, and I was like, "Why did I don't understand why this was so scary?" But I guess back, you know, in the '60s, that was that was it. Absolutely was. But it's and it was a soap opera on in the afternoon, and it was like about vampires and. So so many different kind of odd characters in that one. Um, you talk about the March on Washington, SNCC, 
Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, Chuck McDew, the sit-ins at Woolworths. Um, Woolworths. You talk a lot about um, history and those that came before in your family. And so I guess I was correct because we've already talked about this. I felt like there was a really strong genealogy vibe happening and there absolutely was. Um, but you also made me think about some things. For instance, um, how history was taught before schools were integrated um, in the black versus white schools. And then once you bring those that together, how did that change? Mm-hmm. And that was something I'd never considered before. I also thought about where there's some members of the black community who weren't excited about Martin Luther King Jr. and his message. Absolutely. I- I wanted to write uh, that story, the story about black people who saw the value in what Dr. King was attempting, but wondered if it was worth the possible death and destruction that they already knew would be connected to it. Because they understood resistance uh, often meant change and change can be scary for people and for so many of the black people in in this story and even in my own family they had found a comfortable existence wasn't perfect did they want better for their children and grandchildren absolutely but the idea that they could go to their jobs go to their churches live in a home and be relatively comfortable for many of them that was enough So what Dr. King was offering was something that was very scary to so many people in the black community. When my father came back from fighting in World War II, he had to walk through a line of two armed uh, white men who were not going to allow him to vote. You know, this is a man that had served his country well and was being told that he wasn't fit to vote. And so, For him and so many others, they just wanted to exist without any type of heartache beyond what they'd already experienced. And so this family, Rose Perkins, Bourdon's family, they just they just want to live in Parsons, Georgia and 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 have close family gatherings and laughter and happiness and joy. And they didn't care if they got to eat at the Woolworths counter. They didn't care if they were able to go in and try on a pair of shoes at a shoe store. They just wanted to be okay. And so I felt like that was a story that I had not read. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's Maya Angelou who says, or Toni Morrison, I think it's Toni Morrison who says, if there's a book that you haven't read, write it yourself. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so yep. I felt... This is a story I've not read because we always celebrate the people that are the rebels, the people that break the rules. And I wanted to write about the people who were just trying to exist day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, yeah, and it also made me think about the actual process of registering to vote and what that looked like for members of the black community. And was it the same? Did the white community, the black community have the same process? Process was not the same. It was very labor intensive for Rose. For black, for for any black person, particularly in the South. um, Typically there were poll taxes. So you had to, if you owned any type of property, you had to pay a certain amount of tax money, just additional money on top of the taxes that you were paying just to be able to 
to vote. And then depending on the community, there would be all sorts of ridiculous roadblocks put in one's way, like things like you have to recite the Declaration of Independence verbatim. Mm -hmm. And you think about the majority of the people that are being asked to do this are illiterate. Have, you know, my dad did not go beyond 10th grade. He's a very smart man and he mm -hmm. read a lot, but because he was a member of a sharecropping family, the farm work always took precedence over going to school. Sure. So when you have so many people who, many of them could not even write their own names, yet they were being told you have to memorize you know, the Declaration of Independence or you have to be able to identify all of the people in the House of Representatives, you know, just right. ridiculous things. But here's the, 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 the catch. Those folks were willing to do the work mm -hmm. to still try and pass those tests. Yep. So that's where schools like what you see in uh, Homeward came from, where people would work all day long on their farms or whatever jobs they had, and they would go to their local churches and they would stay there for hours upon hours and memorize this material so that they could go and try and pass those tests. My grandfather was given a big jar filled with candy uh, and told, guess how many pieces of candy are in that jar? And if you can guess how many pieces hmm. of candy are in that jar, you can vote. Like it's some sort of game? Absolutely. Hmm. And then not only did they learn all of these things, but Rose got there to to actually try to register, and then she's met with physical roadblocks. Absolutely. They tell her the hours have changed, they, you know, and I'm sure that those are absolutely things that people endured. Um, how, when did that actually change? When mm -hmm. did it actually change that they didn't, they weren't met with so much resistance? It was mid to late 1960s uh, on paper, but the intimidation continued yeah. well into the Attitudes. 70s and 80s. You know, those people, I tell people, just because, you know, things changed on paper, the people that were hostile mm -hmm. towards black people didn't suddenly get, you know, swooped up into a cloud somewhere. They were still, they were <laughs> right. still here, you right. know. So we still had to, as a people, figure out how to negotiate around those folks that did not want to see those laws uh, put into place. I, I'm 55 years old. I can remember going to a, a coloreds only water fountain and bathroom. And this would have been in the late 60s, 70s. I can remember going to the local doctor's office and there was a colored section and there was a white section. And I remember sitting in the colored section well into my teens. Did did someone formally enforce those laws? I, I, I don't know. I just know that right. that's what we were told to do. Yeah, just kept doing, kept the status quo. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of want to pivot a little bit. Uh, you have written in a lot of formats. You're a writer, a poet, a playwright. Is that what you set out to do? Mm. I set out to tell good stories, and sometimes those stories come to me in different forms. You know, so mm -hmm. sometimes, as I mentioned, Homeward started as a short story, as did all the novels that I've written. They started as a short story, and I just allow the story to sort of dictate where it wants to go. 
Uh, sometimes I'll wake up and I just see a story visually on the stage and I know that, well, that's going to be a play. <laughs> and then other times I see this very expansive story and I think to myself, there's no way I could develop that on the stage. That really needs to be a book. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I'll just get a very brief image and I think, oh, that's a poem. That's a short story. So I sort of let the story tell me what it wants to be. How, and how often do you write? I write every single day. I know that sounds like, oh my goodness, how is she so dedicated to the writing every single day? But some days it's 15 minutes. Some days it's an hour. Some days it's eight hours. I, you know, it depends on what my availability is, but I always know I have to show up to the page every day because it's sort of like exercising. If I don't, then I'll start making excuses and the next thing I know a week or two has gone by. So I just, I show up every day. Okay. Does anything or anyone inspire you to write? Mm, So many people. I say many of the people that inspire me the most are spirits now. Because I think about, you know, all of my relatives who were such great storytellers, but for various reasons didn't have the educational background to sit and write a book. Yeah. So the idea that I can tell those stories on their behalf, I think they are my inspiration. I know I know what you mean. I have some of that for myself. I'm uh, I like to write too, and nature really inspires me for some reason. If I just can go out and sit quietly, it's like I don't know. It sort of opens something up in my brain. I think sometimes I get so busy with life and yeah. the TV or whatnot, and it's like just have to step away from it all a little bit. Right. What is the most difficult part of the writing process for you? I think all of it is difficult. The whole process of writing is difficult. Uh, I think, you know, just keeping myself focused on the story at hand and not getting distracted by other stories. Yeah. You know, because I have, I say if I live long enough to write every story that's dancing around in my head, I'll be the oldest living writer ever <laughs> because they, they're constantly coming to me. Even walking in the Allen County Public Library and going through the genealogy rooms and seeing mm-hmm. all of the different books and documents and I'm thinking oh my gosh there's so many stories that I could tell that are right here under this roof so I have to keep focused (laughs) okay and what is the easiest part of writing for you well I think the easiest part has it's it's becoming the process of listening and just paying attention to the stories that are around me, um, talking to people and recognizing that everyone has a story Hmm. and recognizing that those stories are important and are worthy to be told. And what is your favorite part? The end. (laughs) Finishing it? Finishing it. Yeah. 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 Okay, and so what advice would you give writers working on their first book? I would tell writers to recognize that the first book is really your your rehearsal in terms of figuring out what, what it means to be a writer and that you shouldn't put so much pressure on that first book. I think we sometimes... We get caught up in the Hollywoodness of it all, that I'm Uh going to write my first book. It's going to be turned into a movie, and I'm going to be famous and live happily ever after. Where, for most of us, that first book never sees the light of day. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in a file, and it represents the worst of our writing. <laughs> but it but it prepared mm-hmm. us for where we hopefully will someday land in terms of writing work that we can feel proud of and that it represents who we are becoming as writers. So just don't put so much pressure on that first book. It's there for the it's there for the teaching purpose, not necessarily for the publishing purpose. I guess if that can happen, if you can make a million dollars off your first book, that's great. But I don't necessarily think that should be our goal. Can you offer any advice on finding an agent or publisher? Was that tough for you when you first started? Because I'm I say I'm a type A individual. I think I'm a type A individual with some type B principles about me. But I was very strategic in terms of looking for my agent. So uh, I, I'm with the Spielberg agency, and I had met Alice Spielberg, my agent, at a conference. And I spent the next several years just going to conferences where I knew she would be, listening to her talk, taking notes. And when I got to the point where I was ready to pitch my book to her, she did a pitching session, and I had 15 minutes to sit with her and talk about my project. And within a few hours, I was hearing from her, and she was interested in the book. That's not how it works for most people. For most people, it can take years to find an agent, and sometimes even then, they might not. But I would say be very strategic about who you're looking for. Recognize that this is a relationship that you want to last for a long time. So you you want to find an agent who has has the same type of I suppose writing values that you have in terms of literature and what she puts out or he puts out or they put out that you want to find someone who you think you would have you know a good rapport with. Sure. So yeah, you did some legwork. I did. Yeah. Kind of Re- got to know her. If right, if you're gonna if you're gonna beforehand. sign with an agent, you need to know who they've published. You need to see what books they put out there. Are they similar to what you write? If you're writing science fiction and that person supports historical fiction authors, that's right. probably not gonna be a good fit. Right. So don't just randomly send out letters and hope that it'll stick. Really take some time and research agents just like you researched that book. So you mentioned you were at a conference and she was there. What kind mm-hmm. of a conference were you at? It was a writer's conference. A writer's it, conference. Was a, it was in Bowling Green, Indiana. So they have it every year. And just so happens I heard her speak. And it's like everything she said just ticked off every box I was looking for in terms of an agent. I did send my manuscript out to a couple of more agents. And a couple of them in, in indicated they might be interested. But she was the one. I, mm-hmm. I knew it from the very beginning. She was the one that I wanted to work with. In terms of the newest book, Homeward, how long did it take for the book to be published, as in you finished it and it's for sale on the shelf? In 2015, I believe, was when we first sent When Stars Rain Down out. That was my book, first book with Harper Muse. We sent that book out, and it took about two years for them to sign me on. But they also signed... This is where planning is helpful. I had a outline for my book, The Light Always Breaks, which came came out after When Stars Rain Down. So I got a two-book contract, one based on a complete book and the other on a very extensive outline. Okay. So I tell people outlines can be helpful. I was yeah. able to get a book deal, 
A fiction book deal, which doesn't happen often, you can get a book deal for a nonfiction book with just an outline. It's more difficult to do it with fiction, but because I go all in, they were able to clearly see the scope of that book. So then after that, I signed another two book contract for Homeward and another book that's coming out next year. Okay, so you do have another book in this series. It's not in this series. Not in it's series. totally com- totally different. I was ready to get out of Parsons, Georgia for a little while. So it's a book set in it's set in the 1960s, but it's closer to where I grew up. So back in Alabama. The cover art for Homeward is beautiful. Did you have anything to do with that? I had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was my publisher, they have a a, a whole host of artists that they work with. This particular cover designer, Derek Thornton, I don't, uh, I, I don't know where Derek comes from, but it's as if Derek got into my head and came <laughs> up. If I were an artist, this is what I would have would have come up with. This is it, it just absolutely stunning to me when I saw it, and I they always send it send the cover to me and ask, is there anything you would like us to tweak? I said, absolutely not. It's perfect. It's, and that's exactly uh-huh. the way it looked when they sent it to me. I want to kind of pivot again. And these are some fun questions okay. for our listeners. Uh, how old were you when you wrote your first story? I think, I know I wasn't in school yet. So I'm thinking I was about five or six. I started writing at a very early age. So I was writing at about three or four, so I was told. I remember writing a story about my birth mother because I'm adopted. And it was a complete fairy tale story of her coming to, to, to rescue me and take me away to live in this castle. And I remember writing that story and sharing it with my daddy. If this book, if Homeward were made into a movie, who would you have star in it? Oh my goodness, Viola Davis. I've been writing for Viola Davis as long as I've known <laughs> Viola Davis exists. the world. Yeah. I put her on my list. I was like Viola Davis. I, would she be Opal? She wouldn't be I well, maybe. She's one of those actresses where I think she could play Opal who's in her 40s or 50s, but I think she could also play the grandmother who's yeah. who's a little bit older. If you could spend a day with a writer, living or dead, who would it be? All right. So what author would I want to spend a day with? Oh, my goodness. I think it would be Maya Angelou. And I choose her because I had an opportunity to have a conversation with her. And I was too overwhelmed and in awe that I just I couldn't form any words. Mm -hmm. So I just left the, the, the event and I didn't ask I didn't ask her a single question and then shortly thereafter, she passed away. So if I had a do-over, I would sit at her feet and I would ask her every question I ever had about writing, about life, and just and share with her how much her book um, meant to me as a little girl because so many of the things she wrote about, I experienced as a young girl too. So to be able to tell her thank you. If you could invite three people to dinner, who would you invite? If I could invite three people to dinner, I, well, my goodness, I don't know. I don't know. I, a part of me says my daddy, I would love to have him back, but I don't think a dinner would be enough. But to have my daddy, to have my, my grandparents that I never got a chance to meet, that would be wonderful Mm -hmm. to sit at their feet. All those stories. All of those stories. And then you could put them in the, in your next book. Absolutely. Okay. 
So uh, one more question. How can your fans reach you? Well, they can they can go to my website. That's the easiest place, www.angelajacksonbrown.com. They will find my contact information. They can send me an email, let me know what they think about my books, ask any question that they have. I'm pretty good about answering emails. And then they can follow me on social media. I'm on all of the social media <laughs> outlets. I'm even on TikTok. So if they want to oh, chuckle, yeah. if they want to chuckle, they can go to Angela Jackson Brown author and they can find me on TikTok doing you make some silliness. Fun ones on there, huh? I try to every now and then uh-huh. just yeah. to make people laugh. All right. I like it. I like it. I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I was saying earlier, it was just like sitting here talking to a girlfriend. So thank you. Yeah. I've enjoyed myself. I, felt, I feel the same way. Thank you for joining us today, Angela Jackson-Brown. It's been a pleasure having you on Pages and Voices. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being here. I'm Meg Bell, your host of the ACPL Local Author Podcast, brought to you by the Allen County Public Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please show your support by liking, subscribing, and sharing it with your friends and family. Your support means everything to us.